Hey guys, Present Riley here, and I just wanted to say thank you for being understanding while I had an emergency last week and decided to hold off on the episode. If you're listening to this out of sequence, you might be completely confused, so just disregard and take the kind sentiment. But uh, things have settled down a lot for me now. Thank you to everyone who reached out. I haven't even gotten back with all of you yet. Things have been crazy. Um, But I genuinely love you all so, so deeply. Thank you for your love and your support. Um, just in general. This episode that you are listening to right now, number 16, is going to go up on our regular Wednesday, of course, the day that it's available. Hi, if you're listening on the day the episode drops, what's up? It's Wednesday. Um, But I will also be posting episode number 17 on Friday. So enjoy this one, and then we're going to get back on schedule with a double dose of know-it-all. Yes, you lucky, lucky duckies. Just two days later, we're going to have double episodes this week. Um, Okay, so I'll see you again then, but back to the past version of me. Hello, 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 know-it-alls, and welcome back to the Know-It-All podcast. I am your host, Riley Sue, and I am so excited to be joining you for another installment in our pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Last week, we covered the highly technical and heaven-enchanting art of stained glass, and while I had fun with that episode, it also stirred up a lot of weird feelings in me personally, and I completely expected it to. So this week we have both a fun and spicy brain-friendly episode, which if you're like me, not everything that's fun is necessarily good for you, if you know what I mean. We're going to discuss something that I love and nerd out on with my spouse Bebo. We talk about this topic constantly and we're very bonded over it, and that is animals, but more specifically the things that make animals just incredible. Just letting ourselves, myself, sit in that childlike wonder of, wow, this is so cool. And like, what about all the incredible animals that we may overlook or we think are regular or maybe even boring just because they live close to us and they've been part of the background of our lives for like, well, our whole lives. Those animals are just as interesting and as cool as those that live thousands of miles away. And today I'm going to prove it. I'm going to sit here. And if it pleases the court, I'm going to tell you just how cool the many backyard mammals we have in North America are. I'm going to defend the case of cool critters versus the common culture. And you better bet your little hairy raccoon ass that I'm going to win. But before we can get into the specifics of our two little specimens this week, let's talk about some science. So I asked Bebo to come up with a very simple breakdown of taxonomy for us um, because I don't know if you know this, but I don't do science very, like, strongly. I do science, like, in the broad sense, but when it comes to the specifics, um, you know, I live with someone that has an entire biology degree and teaches it to America's youths, so I think that I would be better off just asking them to make sure that what I'm saying makes sense, right, instead of just, like, trying to fumble my way through it with, like, my history and literature brain. Taxonomy is simply how we classify or organize living things in our world. So if you were to take a guess as to how things are organized, you would probably assume that things that appear related are related. 
And that's very true. Organisms that have more characteristics in common, whether those are visual or um, behavioral, they are going to be more closely related. And when classifying an organism, we place it into seven groups, starting with the most general and ending up with the most specific. So Bebo says that the easiest way to picture this is to think about Russian nesting dolls. The biggest doll that you start out with, the group with the least amount of similarities is your kingdom. And then the smallest doll that you end up with is the species. And between there, the seven groups are kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and of course, species. A super simple example would be human beings. So we're in the animal or animalia kingdom, the chordata phylum, the mammal class, the primate order, the hominidae family, the homo genus, and the sapien species. And that's where we get the name homo sapiens. That's our scientific name if you didn't know. And all of that may seem like complete nonsense, but like most science, it is just nonsense that we've made up to help us make order of the world around us. And you know, the way that we can kind of think about this is that an alien may have a completely different classification system and they might classify us human beings as complete fucking idiots. I mean, they might think that we're great too. We honestly don't know. It's all just a system to make sense of a thing. And like everything else in the world and everything else in science, it was made up. So take it or leave it. That's how it works. I'm going to touch on taxonomy a few different times while I'm talking about our two backyard mammalians today. So I just want you to know what I mean whenever I'm talking about, uh, you know, their genus or things moving around within genuses, geni, genie. I don't know. Anyway, we're doing raccoons and possums today, y'all. Let's get into the stuff I do know about. So leading us off between the two is going to be the Virginia opossum, the northernmost marsupial in the world. Opportunist, a big bumbling house cat with extra sharp teeth. The possum. I'm just going to call them possums from here on out because I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Missouri and we say possum, not opossum. So it sounds inherently more correct to me and it feels physically wrong to say opossum. It just, I can't. I'm not going to be able to do it for the whole you know, hour and a half that I'm sitting here recording. But there are many varieties of possums around the world, and they're actually the largest order of marsupials, containing 93 species and 18 genera. Genera, that's the word. That's what it is. It's not genie, geni, whatever. It's genera. Again, shout out to Bebo for helping us understand all these words. The Virginia possum is the original animal to carry the name opossum, a word which comes from the Algonquin word wapothmwa, meaning white animal. And Virginia possums' ancestors evolved in South America, spreading into North America as part of the Great American Interchange, which I just learned about while researching for this episode, and it is wildly fucking cool. Um, but it occurred mainly after the formation of the Isthmus of Panama around 3 million years ago, and Diphydelphus virginiana, which is the Virginia possum, was apparently one of the later migrants entering North America around 0.8 million years ago. Uh, it's now found throughout Central America and North America from Costa Rica to Southern Ontario, and it's actively expanding its range northward, northwesternly and northeasterly at a significant pace. Possums are just bleeding into every corner of the continent. Like, as we speak, they are on the rise. Its range pre-European settlement, though, was much smaller, only as far north as Maryland, as far south as Illinois, and as far east as maybe Kansas, but that would be pushing it. 
The clearing of forests for settlement in all of these areas and beyond allowed for the possum to move northward at a very significant pace. And now, of course, urbanization and the abundance of resources that come with it has allowed possums to just grow and move their range at a rapid, rapid pace. Um, which, you know, actually, now that I think about it, I don't really see a problem with. Because if they have the ability, why not let that possum go chase his dream in the city? Let him hit it big. I want to see his name in lights. Clearing of forest urbanization and big city dreams aside, though, one of the main things that really has helped possums to expand their range has been the elimination of predators all across the continent. Uh, I mean, really think about what in your neighborhood could beat a possum besides you or your dog. Uh, your house cat's not taking a possum down. Not going to happen. I genuinely don't think that there is a common predator within a suburban area that would beat out a possum. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know enough about animals. Up until the 60s, areas like Rhode Island and the Waterloo region of southern Ontario rarely had sightings of possums, but now they have them regularly and almost in abundance. Some people speculate that this is because of global warming causing winters to be warmer, and some other people speculate that the expansion into Ontario has mostly just been caused by possums accidentally being transferred across the St. Lawrence, Detroit, and St. Clair rivers by motor vehicles or on trains that they might have climbed upon. I kind of prefer this idea, you know, little hobo possums with little knapsacks and dreams playing the banjo, eating beans from a tin, um, you know, chasing their big city dream. Like I said, I, that's, I think that's my personal possum archetype is the hobo possum um, because, because personal disclosure, I've been obsessed with hobos since I was a kid. I, if you know my mother, you could ask her and she'd tell you that anytime I saw an old man wearing a plaid shirt and alone in public between the ages of like I think three and four I was like hey mom is that guy a hobo my grandfather included my beloved grandfather included I was like mommy is papa a hobo um yeah so uh, I think the possum hobo the hobo possum is my preferred possum archetype uh and they're tiny little knapsacks though they can't fit winter coats so they don't live very far north into Canada they're not adapted for cold winters and heavy snows so they only really live in the southern parts of the lower provinces. Also due to their inability to put on little winter coats and survive heavy snows, the Virginia possum was not originally native to the west coast of the United States. They couldn't make it over the Rocky Mountains. It was actually intentionally introduced there during the Great Depression as a food source, and it now takes up most of the Pacific coast, its range pushing farther and farther into British Columbia all the time. They're just, like I said, ever-expanding, more and more north as far as they can. If you don't know what a possum looks like, well, first of all, head over to Instagram because I've got the cutest fucking possum pics on there. Go check it out at knowitallpod. Uh, but their coats are a dullish gray-brown other than on their faces, which are white. And possums have long, hairless, prehensile tails, which they can use to grab onto branches and to carry small objects, like their knapsacks. There's this classic image that might come to your mind of a possum hanging by their tail on a branch, and that's basically a myth. Uh, little baby possums can do it for a moment or two, but they lack developed musculature that would be required to hang out there, pun intended, and big adult possums are just going to be way too heavy. The marsupials have hairless ears, which are just so cute, and they have long, flat faces and noses. And possums have 50 teeth, which is more than any other North American land mammal, and they have opposable, clawless thumbs on their rear limbs. 
Also, no other mammal in North America has more than six upper incisors, but the Virginia possum has 10. Possums also have 13 nipples, which are arranged in a circle of 12 with one in the middle. I want to know if, like, the goodest kid, like, the top of the dance mom pyramids, like, is the does mama rank her babies in the dance mom pyramid certified Abby Lee Miller style every week and top of the pyramid gets the middle teeth? Is that how we decide? Or, like, you know, I, I got to know. I just, and I couldn't find this answer anywhere. I couldn't search terms for dance mom's pyramid opossum. Nothing came up, unfortunately. Possums have claws on all of their fingers, fore and hind. You might be like, Riley, you just said that their thumbs are clawless. Yeah, their thumbs are clawless. They just have little nubby thumbs. And their thumbs generally show up in tracks within a soft medium like mud. And possums typically walk with a pacing gait. And in this pacing gait, the limbs on one side of the body are moved simultaneously just prior to both limbs on the other side of the body. This pattern is visible in their tracks, which explains why the left fore and right hind tracks are generally found together, and then vice versa. If the possum was not walking, like it was running, the prints would fall in a completely different pattern. Other animals that generally employ pacing gait styles are raccoons, bears, skunks, badgers, woodchucks, porcupines, and beavers. This is kind of a sad fact, but, you know, I'm going to take it from sad fact to triumphant fact, because despite this fact, the possum, as I've told you, is a widespread and highly successful species. Um, but the Virginia possum has one of the lowest encephalization quotients of any marsupial, which is basically just the fanciest way possible to say that its brain size compared to its body size is small. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's got a wee little pea brain. Its brain is one-fifth the size of a raccoon's, which, in my experience, Possums are larger than raccoons, so it's looking tough for our buddy the possum. Whenever they're threatened, possums will either flee or take a stand. Fight or flight. Classic. And to appear threatening, possums will generally bare their 50 teeth, snap their jaws, hiss, drool, and stand their fur up on end to look bigger. I mean, like I said, big bumbling house cat with extra sharp teeth. If this doesn't work, though, the Virginia possum is known for pretending to be dead in response to extreme fear. And this is the place of origin for the term playing possum, which means to pretend to be dead or injured with intent to deceive. And in this inactive state, possums lie limp and motionless on their sides with their mouth and eyes open, tongue hanging right out, and their feet clenched up. Fear can also cause the possum to release this green fluid from its anus that is apparently just awful smelling, which I'm going to go ahead and go so far as to guess that anything coming from a possum's anus isn't going to smell that great. But the odor is said to repel predators, and their heart rate drops by half, and their breathing rate is so slow and shallow that it's hardly detectable, and this state will last as long as it takes for the threat to withdraw, meaning that it could last for hours. And besides being discouraging to animals that only want to eat live prey, playing possum also convinces some large animals that the possum is no longer a threat to their young. This instinct, though, in response to large predators, air quotes, if you can kind of guess where I'm going with this, also means that possums are very likely to be injured if they play possum or, you know, play dead in response to oncoming traffic. Um, I know some people find it entertaining to seek out and attempt to hit possums, which is just so awful. They are slow moving. That is awful. They are, they can't get away from you. They're, they can't run very well. Um, 
So just, yeah, mm. sad stuff. Just like <laughs> you think that you're doing your one big hurrah last defense and you can't play, you can't play dead to a car. Possum, you can't do it. Not, especially not whenever that car is going like 75 eating Taco Bell flying down the interstate. Dolly Parton cranked up to 15. I mean, no, nobody's stopping that. Possums are omnivorous and eat a wide range of plant-based food. Same boo. As well as animal-based foods. Not same boo. Like small invertebrates, carrion, eggs, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, small mammals, and other small animals. Which I don't know how small mammals and small animals got into my list separately because one overtakes the other as Bebo taught us earlier. Shout out again. It has been scientifically stated, though, that possums eat up to 95% of the ticks that they encounter in their life. And they may eat up to 5,000 ticks per season. That's 95% of the ticks that they encounter in a lifetime and 5,000 ticks per season. I've not eaten any of the ticks that I encountered in this lifetime, and I damn sure haven't eaten one, let alone fucking 5,000. So... Besides being cute and, you know, wumbling, bumbling, possums are actively helping us fight the spread of tick-borne illnesses, including Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And I will say this research has been challenged, but I couldn't find any research saying that it definitely wasn't true. So I'm going to go ahead and continue to support this statement. Aside from all of the things that it eats, though, Virginia possums have been found to be very resistant to snake venom, which is just really, really cool because they're very small and if a snake bite can take out a human then how is a little tiny wee possum marsupial boy fighting off that snake venom just like what Mm -hmm. again science i don't i don't get it the breeding season for virginia possums can begin as early as december and continues through october with most young being born between february and june and a female possum can have one to three litters a year during the mating season the male attracts the female by making a clicking sound with his mouth If I had to guess, it sounds like. Mm, That was good. That was really good. Gotta watch out for possums busting through the window. The female's heat cycle is 28 days and lasts 36 hours. So that means a mommy possum and poppy possum only have 36 hours to get while the getting is good in order to make a litter of possum babies. The gestation period for possums lasts between 11 and 13 days, and the average litter size is 8 to 9 infants, although more than 20 could be born. You might be sitting there like, 11 to 13 days, Riley, did you just misspeak? But no, 11 to 13 days. This is because, of course, possums are marsupials. So whenever their offspring are born, their newborns are about the size of a honeybee. And once delivered through the median vagina or central birth canal, newborn possums climb up their mother into the female possum's pouch and latch onto one of her 13 teats. Just like a kangaroo, just like the panda bear, just like the koala, just like any other marsupial that you can think of off the top of your head. Um, Incredible stuff. Actually, I learned this while researching this episode. Pandas are not marsupials. They are actually real standard bears. And they're actually... A living fossil of bears. They're the oldest, the oldest basal member of the Ursa, Ursa Dei. I don't know. This isn't an episode about bears, but they're the oldest member of that. So they climb into the pouch and they latch onto the teat, and the young will remain latched onto that teat for two months and stay in the pouch for two and a half months. 
The young will then climb out of the pouch onto the mother's back where she's going to carry them around for the remainder of their time together. And it's during this time that the young will learn survival skills, they'll learn how to hunt, and they'll leave their mother at about four or five months old. Again, check out Instagram for adorable little jelly bean looking baby possums all the way up to baby possums on a mama's back. So freaking cute. Switching to things that maybe aren't so cute. Like all female marsupials, the female reproductive system of possums is bifid, meaning that they have two lateral vagina, uteri, and ovaries. The male's penis is also bifid, meaning that it has two heads. Um, it's very pointy. It looks like almost like a snake's tongue, like, like a poker, like a fire poker or something. Not inviting. I guess that's why they only give them 36 hours to get it done, right? Like, get in and get out and get on your way. Otherwise, get that thing away from me. Like I mentioned a little bit whenever I talked about possums on the West Coast, the possum was once a favorite game animal in the United States, and particularly in the South, where you can find a lot of folklore and a lot of recipes relating to the possum. History on the consumption of possums is preserved by recipes online and in older cookbooks, and I actually found a recipe through the Library of Congress that I want to share with you. So our first direction is clean like a pig. Scrape, not skin it. Okay, I don't really know. You've kind of already lost me, but we'll keep going. Chop the liver fine, mix with breadcrumbs, chopped onion, parsley, with pepper and salt. Bind with a beaten egg and stuff the body with it. I... While I'm disturbed, my first question is, does a single liver truly fill up the entire cavity of a creature? Um, I don't eat meat, so I need that one really genuinely explained to me. Sew up, roast, and baste with salt and water. So, so far our seasonings are parsley, salt, and pepper. Not looking good. In order to make it crisp, rub it with a rag dipped in its own grease. That was a full body chill that you just got on audio. Serve with the gravy made of brown flour. I don't know why we have the sentence says, I'll read it again. Serve with the gravy made of brown flour. Is that like the girl with the dragon tattoo? Like, do I have to read a three book series to figure out who that is? I didn't actually read that. So I'm sorry if I am offending any girl with dragon tattoo. Um, I mean, I guess girls with dragon tattoos out there. I don't know what your fans are called. Serve it whole on a platter and put a baked apple in its mouth. It is very nice stuffed with apples, peeled and sliced. Possum may also be made into a very palatable stew. None of this sounds palatable, um, dear author, Miss Owens, but thank you. I appreciate that. If you would like to read that on your own without my interjected commentary, don't know why you would, but uh, that'll be on Instagram too. Go ahead and check that out. So as that shows, the traditional method of preparing is baking, and sometimes you can put it in a pie or pastry or even a stew, like she said, though now possum pie most often refers to a sweet confection that has no meat of any kind, let alone possum meat. The other animal we're going to cover today is the big-brained backyard bud to the possum, the raccoon. You know the ones, very dexterous little forepaws, black mask across their eyes, ringed tail, 
The creature native to North America and your trash bins that's highly intelligent, nocturnal, and omnivorous. And not to mention fucking adorable. So the original habitats for the raccoon are deciduous and mixed forests, but due to their adaptability, they, much like the possum, have extended their range to mountainous areas, coastal marshes, and urban areas. Truly a mixed bag, there are some homeowners that consider raccoons to be pests, while other people try to keep them in their homes as pets. Unlike the possum, though, because of deliberate introductions and escapes in the mid-20th century, raccoons are also distributed across Central Europe, the Caucasus, and Japan. Its name varies from raccoon, common raccoon, North American raccoon, and simply northern raccoon, but I'm just going to say raccoon for simplicity's sake. In various North American native languages, the source of the animal's name comes from its ability to use its hands, and the word raccoon was adopted into English from the native Powhatan term meaning animal that scratches with its hands. John Smith recorded it on his list of Powhatan words as a roughkin, and William Strachey recorded it as a rathcone. It's also been identified as a reflex of the Proto-Algonquin root arathcunum, meaning the one who rubs, scrubs, and scratches with its hands. In Mexican Spanish, the raccoon is called mapache, derived from the Nahuatl mapachli of the Aztecs, meaning the one who takes everything in its hands. Its Latin name originally means before dog washer, and the animal's observed habit of washing or dousing, which I'm going to really get into later, is the source of its name in many, many other languages. For example, in French, its name, ratun laveur, means washing rat. In the first few decades after raccoons had their introduction to members of the Columbus expeditions, who were the first Europeans to leave a written record about the species, taxonomists thought that raccoons were related to many different things, including dogs, cats, badgers, and particularly bears. Carl Linnaeus, who is the father of modern taxonomy, placed the raccoon in the genus Ursus. First as Ursus cauda elongata, meaning long-tailed bear, then as Ursus loader, meaning washer bear. Ursus is the genus for bears. I was trying to come up with that earlier when I was talking about pandas. But in 1780, Gottlieb Conrad Christian Storr placed the raccoon in its own genus, Procyon, which can be translated as either before the dog or dog-like. Similar tooth and skull structure suggests that procyonids and weasels share a common ancestor. But molecular analysis has indicated that there's a closer relationship between raccoons and bears. So Daddy Charles Linnaeus was correct. And unlike other procyonids, like the crab-eating raccoon, the ancestors of the common raccoon left tropical and subtropical areas to migrate further north about 2.5 million years ago. The most recent ancestor for the common raccoon was likely Procyon rexroadnus, a large raccoon from the rex road formation characterized by its narrow back teeth and large lower jaw. If you're like, oh my god, so many raccoons, I can't keep up. Well, that's because as of 2005, mammal species of the world has recognized 22 subspecies of raccoons. The four smallest of the raccoon subspecies, with a typical weight between four and six pounds, live along the southern coast of Florida and on the adjacent islands. Most of the other subspecies differ only slightly from each other in coat color, size, and other physical characteristics. The two most widespread subspecies are the eastern raccoon and the upper Mississippi Valley raccoon and both share a comparatively dark coat with long hairs, but the upper Mississippi Valley raccoon is larger than the eastern raccoon. The eastern raccoon has a range in all U.S. states and Canadian provinces to the north of South Carolina and Tennessee. The adjacent range of the upper Mississippi Valley raccoon covers all U.S. states and Canadian provinces 
to the north of Louisiana, Texas, and New Mexico. The body weight of an adult raccoon varies greatly with habitat, which makes the raccoon one of the most variably sized mammals. It can range from 4.4 to 57.3 pounds, but it's typically between 11 and 26 pounds. The smallest specimens live in southern Florida, while those near the northern limits of the raccoon's range tend to be the largest. And this is an example of what's called Bergman's rule, that widespread subspecies of an animal will exhibit larger sizes in colder climates and smaller sizes in warmer ones. The largest recorded wild raccoon weighed 63 pounds and measured 55 inches in total length, by far the largest size recorded for a procyonid, easily. And like also imagine that, 63 pounds. Taking it back to the cryptids episode, that's like, that's bigger than the frogman, no? Like that's, what did we say? That was like third grader size? That's a third grader as a raccoon. <laughs> Woo, as a raccoon? Could you imagine going out you walk out of your house. You've got some garbage in your hand. You flip on the outside light. You turn the corner. You notice that the bin's lid is just a little ajar, but you're like, maybe, maybe there's something stuck under there, you know? Maybe my partner threw something out earlier that just didn't make it all the way in. You flip the lid up, and there is a little third grader in there just going ham, going hard on the crumbs from your box of Lucky Charms, just like you shine your light on it, you jump back. Oh my God. No, thank you. The most characteristic physical feature of the raccoon is the area of black fur around its eyes, which contrasts with the surrounding white face coloring. And this is similar to a bandit's mask and has thus enhanced the animal's reputation for mischief. They have slightly rounded ears that are also bordered by white fur. And raccoons are possibly able to recognize the facial expressions and posture of other members of their species more quickly because of their dramatic facial coloring and the alternating light and dark rings on their tails. The dark mask may also reduce glare and thus enhance night vision, like eye black on baseball players. Other parts of the body, the long and stiff guard hairs, which shed moisture, are usually colored in shades of gray and, to a lesser extent, brown. The raccoon, who I mentioned earlier uses the pacing gait, but also can be considered to be plantigrade, has the ability of standing on its hind legs to examine objects with its front paws, which, again, adds to the cuteness factor of these dudes. Raccoons have short legs compared to their compact torso, so they're not really able to run quickly or jump very high. Their top speed over a short distance can be 9.9 to 14.9 miles per hour, but they aren't built for a long distance. Raccoons can swim with an average speed of about 3.1 miles per hour and can stay in the water for several hours. Now, in his prime, Michael Phelps swam at about 4.7 miles per hour. So I'm going to go ahead and say that 3.1 is pretty damn quick. Uh, they also have the ability to be in the water for hours. And the longest I think I saw Michael swim for was like 15 seconds. Um, it was impressive, nevertheless, but it wasn't hours, okay? Raccoons also have this unusual ability to climb down trees head first. And the way that they do this is by rotating their hind feet so they're pointing backwards and they're able to hold on as if, you know, they were upright, if that makes any kinds of sense. Raccoons have a dual cooling system to regulate their temperature. And I don't mean that they have AC by that. I mean that they're able to sweat and pant. Dogs pant because they can't sweat. We sweat. We don't pant. Um, they do both, which cools them down twice as fast. The most important of the five senses for a raccoon is its sense of touch. And their hypersensitive front paws are protected by a thin horny layer, which is a lot like a dog's paw, that becomes pliable when wet. 
also wildly fascinating is that two-thirds of the area responsible for sensory perception in the raccoon's cerebral cortex is specialized for the interpretation of tactile impulses, meaning that more than two-thirds of the area of their brain that interprets any of their senses is specialized for interpreting touch. Um, that's more than any other studied animal, more than us. That's incredible. This means that they're able to identify objects before even touching them with the pads on their paws. And that's because they have these things called vibraci that are located above their non-retractable claws. These vibraci are a lot like a cat's whiskers and they give a lot of information to the raccoon's mind. The raccoon's paw in general lacks an opposable thumb, thus it doesn't have the agility of the hands of primates. Still though, thumb or not, they take in more sensory input from their hands than they do anything else. And that's not to say that their other senses are poor. They are thought to be colorblind, but their eyes are well adapted for seeing green light. Their sense of smell is important for not only orientation within the dark, but also for interspecies communication. And they have a broad auditory range. They can hear tones that are up to 50 to 85 kilohertz, and they can hear quiet, I'm talking impossible noises. Like, y'all, this is not even a joke they can hear earthworms underground. They can hear worms munching about on the ground and figure out where that worm is, dig that worm up and eat it. Like, impressive. Though they're typically nocturnal, raccoons are sometimes active in daylight to take advantage of available food sources. And their diets consist of about 40% invertebrates, 33% plant matter, and 27% vertebrates. And while their diet in spring and early summer consists mostly of insects, worms, and other animals that are readily available, raccoons prefer fruits and nuts, such as acorns and walnuts, which emerge in the late summer and autumn, and are a great calorie source for building up fat that they need for winter. And when food is plentiful, raccoons have strong individual preferences for specific foods. They have favorites just like you and I. One aspect of raccoon behavior that is so well known that it even gives the raccoon its name is dousing. In the wild, raccoons often dabble for underwater food near the shoreline. They often pick up the food item with their front paws to examine it and they'll rub the item, sometimes to remove unwanted parts. And this gives the appearance of the raccoon washing the food. The tactile sensitivity of the raccoon's paws is increased if this rubbing action is performed underwater, since the water softens that hard, horny layer covering their paws. But in observed raccoons, they will carry their food from where it was given to them to the water to wash it or douse it before eating it. This behavior has not been observed in the wild, though we do know that raccoons will rub on their food before they eat it in general. So captive raccoons douse their food more frequently when a watering hole with a layout similar to a stream is no farther than 10 feet away. The most widely accepted theory is that dousing behaviors in captive raccoons is a fixed action pattern that begins from the dabbling behavior performed when foraging on shores for aquatic foods. This is supported by the observation that aquatic foods are doused more frequently. Cleaning dirty food doesn't seem to be the reason for washing. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that captive raccoons are reaching an instinctive part of their mind and scratching the itch, so to speak, on that spot in a loop-like behavior so they can, I guess, feel more wild, feel more in touch with their primal self. Um, you know, it's like grounding or giving birth without medication. It's just what they do to feel alive. <laughs> <laughs> 
Raccoons will usually mate in a period that is triggered by increasing daylight between late January and mid-March. And during the mating season, males will restlessly roam their home ranges in search of females in an attempt to court them during a three to four day period where conception is possible. These meetups will often occur at central meeting places. But get this, their sexual encounters, including foreplay, can last hours and they are repeated over several nights. Wow. Nothing like the possums in the bifed get out of here. No several nights and extended hours. Male raccoons have no part in raising their young. The kits are blind and deaf at birth, but their mask is already visible against their light fur. And the birth weight of kits is between two and two and a half ounces. Once the kits weigh about two pounds, they'll begin to explore outside of their den, consuming solid food for the first time after six to nine weeks. In the fall, after their mother has shown them other dens and feeding grounds, the juvenile group will split up. Captive raccoons have been known to live for more than 20 years. However, the species' life expectancy in the wild is only 1.8 to 3.1 years, depending on the local conditions such as traffic volume, hunting, and weather severity. It's not unusual for only half of the young born in one year to survive to a full year, and the most frequent natural cause of death in the North American raccoon population is distemper, which can reach epidemic proportions, killing off most of a local raccoon population. The most important natural predators of raccoons are bobcats, coyotes, and great horned owls, the latter mainly preying on young raccoons, but capable of killing adults in some cases. Of course, like most wild animals, raccoons can carry rabies, which is a lethal disease caused by the neurotropic rabies virus that is carried in the saliva and transmitted via bites. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, as well as local authorities in several U.S. states and Canadian provinces, have developed oral vaccination programs to fight the spread of the disease in endangered populations of raccoons. Only one human fatality has ever been reported after transmission of the rabies virus strain commonly known as raccoon rabies, and that man died in 2003 after 14 days in the hospital, and he'd been getting progressively sicker at home days before that. Among the main symptoms for rabies in raccoons are generally sickly appearance, impaired mobility, abnormal vocalization, and aggressiveness. There could be no visible signs at all, though, and most individuals don't show the aggressive behavior that's commonly seen in infected canids. Rabid raccoons will often retire to their dens instead. Organizations like the U.S. Forest Service encourage people to stay away from animals with unusual behavior or appearance and to notify the proper authorities, such as an animal control officer or your local health department. Since healthy animals, especially nursing mothers, will occasionally forage during the day, daylight activity is not a reliable indicator of illness in raccoons. But in general, y'all, if you get bitten by a wild animal or scratched, or you just in general don't feel well, go see a damn doctor. Like, you're not going to get a badge for toughing it out. You're just going to fry your brain from the inside and end up in a body bag. You're better off living and getting to look at adorable photos of raccoons. In Japan, up to 1,500 raccoons were imported as pets after the success of the 1977 anime series Rascal the Raccoon. And in 2004, the descendants of discarded or escaped animals lived in 42 of 47 prefectures. The range of raccoons in the wild in Japan grew to all 47 prefectures in 2008, and it's estimated that raccoons caused 30 million yen of agricultural damage on Hokkaido alone. In Germany, where the raccoon is called the wash bear, meaning literally wash bear or washing bear due to its habit of dousing, in Germany, two pairs of pet raccoons were released into the German countryside at the Edersee Reservoir in the north of Hesse in April of 1934 by a forester. 
He released them two weeks before he got permission to release them from the Prussian hunting office to, quote, enrich the fauna. Several prior attempts to introduce raccoons in Germany had been unsuccessful. A second population was established in Germany in 1945 when 25 raccoons escaped from a fur farm at Wolfshagen, east of Berlin, after an airstrike. The two populations of raccoons in Germany are parasitologically distinguishable. 70% of the raccoons from the Hessian population are infected with a roundworm, but none of the Brandenburgian population is known to have that parasite. In the Hesse region, there were an estimated 285 raccoons in 1956. That number increased to over 20,000 in 1970. In 2008, it was estimated that there were between 200 and 400,000 raccoons in the entirety of Germany. But by 2012, it was estimated that Germany was now home to more than 1 million raccoons. While they were primarily hunted for their fur, raccoons were also a great source of food for Native Americans and early American settlers. And according to Ernest Thompson Seton, young specimens that are killed without a fight are very palatable, whereas old raccoons that are caught after a lengthy battle are going to be inedible. Maybe instead of releasing that putrid thing out their anus, it just bleeds into all of their muscles. I'm not really sure. Again, I don't eat meat. I don't know. I do know, though, that raccoon meat was extensively eaten during the early years of California being a state, where it was sold in the San Francisco market for $1 to $3 a piece. And African-American slaves occasionally ate raccoon at Christmas time, but that's not to say that it was a necessarily poor or rural dish. The first edition of The Joy of Cooking, which was released in 1931, contained a recipe for preparing raccoon. And President Calvin Coolidge's pet raccoon, Rebecca, was originally sent to be served at the White House Thanksgiving dinner. And although the idea of eating raccoons may seem repulsive to most mainstream consumers who see them as endearing, cute, or even as vermin, several thousand raccoons are still eaten each year in the United States, primarily in the southern U.S. I don't think that I mentioned it at the top of the episode, but this is going to be a broader um long-term project that we are going to be working towards with no end in sight because there's no way I could ever talk about every animal but I want to continue to highlight cool animals um, and talk about things that people may not know about about animals that are around them or even just you know uh, talk about animals that I may not know if you'd like to keep these two critters we discussed today away from your home and do so safely you can use vinegar ammonia garlic cayenne pepper or predator urine that you can purchase online or I'm sure in local stores, support local businesses. Um, You can use all of those things around your home to keep them away. Uh, Another great way is to keep trash and other possible food sources secure. And if a raccoon or possum does become trapped in or around your home, contact local authorities to help you remove it. Unless the animal is exhibiting signs of distemper or rabies, it can be removed alive. And after rehabilitation, it can be released back into the wild which is what it deserves. Let's let that possum chase its big city dream. Possums that are hit may still have living babies in their pouch. I didn't even mention this whenever we were talking about not only possums getting hit by cars, but also their little babies inside of their little um, pouch with their bullseye nipples. Uh, They can live after they've been hit. If you're able to safely check, do so. And if you find some living babies, contact your local wildlife rescue group or your state's conservation department. Do not, I repeat, do not attempt to raise wild animals, especially wild possums or raccoons. The two cannot sustain on cow's milk or kitten formula and they need specialized care. 
take them to someone who can provide that care. Give them the best opportunity to be rehabilitated and put back into the wild where they belong. If you get bitten by a wild animal or scratched or you come in contact with their feces or one of their dens, contact authorities, go to the doctor. If you cannot safely help a wild animal, contact a professional um, that can remove it and determine next steps. When in doubt, contact somebody else. Um, Again, don't keep wild animals as pets, even if they are babies. Get them to a licensed rehabilitation group and they will be 10,000 times better off. Also, you will be 10,000 times way less likely to get a fine or go to jail or um, kill a innocent animal, which would be so tragic. Mostly though, enjoy the world around you. Just appreciate the life and the world around you. I have a guidebook of birds that I keep on my kitchen table where I drink my coffee every morning and I like to figure out what birds I'm looking at all around the neighborhood. Um, You know, get curious ask questions about the world around you. What kind of tree is in your backyard? Is it edible? What kind of weed is this growing next to your house? Is it edible? I personally love to eat stuff that I maybe shouldn't. Um, I love to scare people by providing weird facts about possum penises or by just eating stuff that they think is garbage. So maybe I'm the possum. Huh. Maybe my favorite possum archetype is me. I really think that's something to chew on. I think this is going to have to be where I cut it off, guys. I'm in the beginnings of an existential crisis on the possum possibilities. Why haven't I? (sighs) All right, I got to go before I start to spiral, y'all. Thank you so, so much for tuning in, for hanging out with me and learning about animals this week. Um, I love you so much. We are wrapping things up. Don't forget that we have just a few more episodes to go and then the season will be over. Uh, This is episode 17. So we've got three after this and I'm so excited. It's almost pride month and you know, I'm a gay. So gotta do my gay thing. Goodbye. I hope you'll join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. I love you guys so, so much. In the meantime, check out the Instagram post, like it, share the episode, comment, vote in the Q&A. Mostly stay safe out there. Protect the critters around you. Until next time. Thanks.